So we're picking up right, right in the middle of a story that we actually began last week, right? We, we stopped right in the middle of Jesus' sermon, uh, his teaching. Jesus had uh, you know, spent some time in this region of Galilee. It's about a 25 by 40 square, that wouldn't make a square, but a rectangle shaped uh, area. And he's been going from town to town and teaching in various synagogues on each Lord's Day. Uh, and then verse 15 is, tells, us there, tells us that he was being glorified by all. They, they loved his teaching. That, that's what we're understanding here. And so then he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, where last week he, he read from the scroll of Isaiah. He opens up and he reads, and, and, and he says that he fulfills everything that Isaiah spoke of in this passage. That he comes to proclaim the good news to the poor. Uh, and he says he'll set captives free and he'll give sight to the blind and the oppressed would be, would be set free. These are the things he's proclaiming. And so then uh, our text today is picking up uh, with, with the people who, who are really impressed by this 30-year-old man whom they know, who grew up in their midst, and, and, and who clearly they had no idea was able to teach like this. And so we're picking up right there and that's kind of the situation going on there. So let's, let's read the passage as it picks up. Uh, And again, this is right in the middle of his preaching, chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hard hearts are like hard soil. They're not ready to receive the seed of your word. Lord, we, we know that in our nature, natural state, um, that we have hardened hearts. Hearts that reject you and your word. And so we ask that, that the Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts every day and this day to receive your word. No matter how difficult or offensive it may be to our pride or to our current way of thinking or living. Lord, we desire to grow in the way that you intend for us to grow. So help us now to understand your, your holy word here before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll tell you, everyone responds to preaching differently. Because just as significant to, to what is actually preached is how prepared someone's heart is to hear what is being taught. So Some of you know that I've been greatly influenced by John Piper and, and his teaching and writing and, and preaching ministry, and uh, so much so that uh, our, our eldest child, uh, our daughter rather, is named Sadie Piper after him. Um, and I'll tell you this, though, you, you might not know, is that I, I first heard of John Piper in January of 1999, 
I was a sophomore in college and someone invited me to a, a conference called Passion 99. Uh, I believe these conferences are still going on today. Uh, I was a brand new believer, a still relatively new believer, I guess you'd put it. And, and when John Piper spoke one evening, I had no idea what the crazy man was talking about. I couldn't understand anything he said. In fact, I found myself not liking him. I just I couldn't stand this guy wearing this suit and this tie. However, I really enjoyed one of the other teachers. There was a woman named uh, Beth Moore, who I, I later learned was the sweet mate of uh, the mother of Laura's sweet mate in college, which was a little weird later on. But uh, I, I, I love, though, like looking back at this and seeing God's providence in this really kind of unusual situation. Um, because I wanted to hear Beth Moore's teaching a, a second time and a third time. And so I went to their site and I thought, I'm going to order the CD of that so I can listen to it again and again. And they said, no, you can't just buy one CD. You have to buy the entire set of all these people. And so once I was done complaining about what a crock that was, uh, I went ahead and bought the entire set uh, of all five speakers. And I got it and I listened to the, the one I wanted to. I ended up listening to four of them very often. But remembered I hated that guy, John Piper. Didn't want to listen to him. And yet finally I popped it in and I, I listened a second time to, to, to Piper as he preached a 52-minute sermon on having joy through suffering. The first time I heard it, I absolutely hated it. But these six months later that I listened to it, it, it absolutely blew me away. To this day, it is still my favorite sermon I've ever listened to. So I asked you, what, what changed? It's a recording of the sermon, so literally not a single word of the sermon changed. It was me who had been changed by God to hear that. Many of you that came to faith later in life, you, you have a, a, a similar experience you might understand. You, you, you might have, uh, maybe you can say, you know, how many times did you, did you actually hear the basic facts, the understanding of the gospel laid out for you, and it meant nothing until one day suddenly it did actually mean something to you? What changed, right? It, it's you that's been changed by, by, by the Lord in that situation. And, and so what we see in our passage today are, are people whose hearts are, are not prepared to hear what Jesus is coming to teach them. They are unwilling to believe Jesus is who Jesus says he is in this moment. And, and so let's have a look at this passage and see if we can understand this. Because in verse 22, things are actually going pretty fantastic. Right? The, the introduction is going well. The, the people spoke well of Jesus. They marveled at, at how gracious his words were. I mean, we can understand that. We, we meet people all the time in our culture that will tell us, yeah, I love Jesus, right? His teaching's fantastic. They, they love the way he talks about loving your neighbor. They love the way he handles the, the woman caught in adultery. Like it's just genius and gracious and compassionate. Or the way that he's helping poor all the time. The, 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 they just love these teachings of Jesus. But if you ask them, uh, uh, you know, if you ask them about miracles... If you ask him about Jesus' teaching on judgment and hell or sexual ethics, suddenly Jesus, as he's made himself known in Scripture, is, is not someone they can accept anymore or even tolerate. So, so remember, again, I know I've said this a few times, but this worship service is, is going on. They're right in the middle of it. And Jesus is teaching, uh, and the people love him, but then they start leaning over to each other, right? Having this conversation. They're, they're, they're remembering things as they're amazed by this guy. Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, he, he just said he's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, right? He can't be the Messiah because he's one of the kids we've been watching grow up. It's impossible. 
And really, if you put it in our context, you can't blame them, can you, for responding this way? Because it'd be like if, um, if George Durrett or Isaac Shanahan or Caden Klein or any of our other covenant children, you know, 20 years from now were to, were to come back in here and just teach amazingly, right? But also say they're the Son of God. That wouldn't sit so well. Right? That, that can't be. That's the Son of Tim. Right? That, that's the situation we're talking about here. See, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, I, <clears throat> I can see why they'd be so incredibly skeptical in this moment. And, and so then Jesus either hears what they're saying or the Holy Spirit makes him aware of their thoughts, their inner thoughts, because, because he responds to their hardened hearts in this moment. See, Jesus says this. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Now, that's, that's not from the biblical books of Proverbs, right? If you go back there, you can go through it all you want. You're not going to find that proverb in there. And, and you've got to understand, when they say proverb here, they're using the term in, in the sense of a cultural proverb, right? We have those. The pen is mightier than the sword, right? The squeaky wheel gets what? The grease. Defense. You know this one? Wins championships, right? These are the kind of cultural proverbs that we're talking about. And, and this is one of theirs, you see, because medicine was a little bit shy of being an actual science at this point in history. And so when a doctor would give medicine to a sick person, <clears throat> the patient would want some proof that this, this treatment wasn't actually going to kill them, right? And so they'd want the doctor, you know, why don't you do this first and we'll see what happens and then I'll do what you're saying to do. Again, we, we do that today, right? Not with doctors, hopefully. But if one of my children brings me a cup of something he's mixed up and says, Hey, Dad, taste this. Right? What's my response to be? I mean, no. No. You drink that first. If you don't drop dead, maybe I'll try that, That's what they're talking about here. And, and then Jesus goes on then to explain what, what, what demonstration of proof they want, right? How, how they want him to heal himself in this sense. They're, they're asking for And he's saying this. Uh, well, we'll come to that in a second. First, so again, Nazareth is about 40 miles from Capernaum, another city. And he's been there. And they've already been hearing that this guy, Jesus, who they know has been doing miracles there, right? Miracles. So Jesus, you know, performed them. And, and so they're saying, we want that same proof. Jesus, prove you're the Messiah by doing miracles right here, right now in our presence. Then we'll believe. You see, at the, the heart of the issue here is, is unbelief. They do not believe the word of God as Jesus speaks, them to, speaks it to them. And again, uh, that, that's the attitude we have today. Often, we, I mean, it's beautiful to see the way we're reading something from 2,000 years ago, and it matches our culture in so many unique ways. We, because we want to set these terms, don't we, for, for believing in God. Or I don't know how many conversations I've had with people over the year where there's some term, right? You know, God, if you will speak audibly to me just once, I'm only asking once, then I'll become a Christian. Right? That's our terms. Or, or, or God, if you, will, if you will heal my friend of cancer then I'll know you're real and I'll believe in you. A, a, a demand for some sign first and, and then I'll believe. Now, uh, my undergrad was in philosophy. You might not believe that if you know me very well. I never talk about that. I was, I was an incredibly lame philosopher anyway. Um, you know, I didn't have the tweed coat or carry the pipe that really uh, gave you creed, you know, street cred. Uh, you know, instead I had like a can of Yoohoo and a t-shirt on. It was didn't fit in at all. Anyways, there was this well-known philosopher named uh, Bertrand Russell, 
who actually took part in all these things. He looked the part perfectly. He had the jacket, he had the pipe, he even as he got older got the bushy eyebrows that all philosophers get for some reason. Um, he's also an agnostic, okay? Uh, didn't see any evidence that, that, that justifies believing God exists. Uh, now, he's been dead for 70 years, which is a little weird because he's actually gone through what he's talking about in this situation I'm going to tell you about. But he, he was asked one time, what would you say if you found yourself face-to-face with God? And without hesitation, he, 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 he said, not enough evidence, Lord, not enough evidence. He would lay down these, these expectations, right, that, that I couldn't have been expected to believe because there wasn't enough evidence. And ultimately what we're seeing here is he would not believe anything on faith. <clears throat> and that's a problem. That, that's a problem because our, our creator does not give in to the demands of his creatures. And, and also God's gracious plan of redemption calls us to believe with faith. Not perfect faith, but faith. E- even those who had the benefit later in, in Jesus' ministry, we'll see, even those who do see the miracles ultimately have to believe on faith, and many of them don't, even when they do see the miracles. So, so anyway, here, here Jesus then says that, that now famous line, right, that truly I say to you, <clears throat> no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he begs the question, right, why? Why, why are they not acceptable? Well, the, the reason is that because a, a, a prophet... Prophets are often called to confront sin, to confront unbelief. And, and Jesus knows, they, they, they look at him, and, and they're seeing Joseph's son, right? They're not seeing the son of God, as he's telling them he is. They're seeing Joseph's son and nothing more. Right? So there's this idea of this, this confrontation of, uh, of not, not appreciating that. You, you ever wonder <clears throat> why the hardest people to talk to about Jesus in your entire life is your family? I mean, I'm not the only one who feels that. I've heard this shared, right? I mean, that's the toughest people to actually sit down and talk about Jesus to. When, when, we, when we share the gospel with our families, and I'm thinking extended families here, we, we do so with this prophetic voice, right? Uh, in the sense that we draw attention to their sinfulness, their brokenness, right? Their need of a Savior. We, we talk about guilt and, and, and judgment, again, just for the need of a Savior. Do they understand that? But, but your family knows you from childhood. They, they know just how selfish you can be. They, they remember all the terrible things you did to your sister uh, or the stories that they, they heard about your childhood at different times, you know? Um, and, and so their hearts aren't always ready to hear the gospel from us. It's one of the most awkward situations that it can be. Now, some have suggested, and generally I agree with them, that, that, that often we need to approach our own families, our, our grown brothers and sisters, our parents and cousins, that, that we ought to approach them in the sense of, <clears throat> of being servants, which, which is not always easy to do, right? Uh, to, to, to care for them as someone who has been changed by the gospel and, and then being able to see the, the fruit of that, rather than addressing them as confronting prophets, we address them as, as, as loving servants. Now, Yes, pray, ask the Lord to make their hearts of your family prepared to hear the gospel. Pray, you know, even that they might ask you, right, to, to ask you why you believe. As 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, we should be prepared to, to be able to explain to someone. But, but maybe this Christmas, and instead of making your goal to proclaim the gospel to your, your brother, make your goal to, to love him well in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not to make little of the gospel. 
But simply to acknowledge even the words of Christ here, that that is, that is one of the areas that are, you know, the speaking in a prophetic way is not always helpful. And again, when I say prophetic, I'm talking about confronting sin. Um, and so they're doubting here that, that Jesus is who he says he is. And, and so Jesus tells them these two stories about two different prophets. Uh, these stories have two purposes. The, the first purpose is to, to teach us that the gospel is also for outsiders, for Gentiles in the context of this passage. But, but as we look at it in our own culture and try to apply it, it would also include uh, those who didn't grow up in the church, those who don't understand the church in any way. The second purpose of these stories is to show us the, the necessity of faith and the currency of God's kingdom. You see, uh, so let's look at these. The first story is recorded in 1 Kings 17, uh, verses 7 through 16. And there, the prophet Elijah, um, he encounters this old, unbelieving Gentile woman in the land of Sidon, which, which is not Israel. That's what you need to know, not Israel. And this terrible famine is happening. There's no food. And the woman tells Elijah that she has a handful of flour and just a little bit of oil left is what's, what her situation is. And, and her plan is this. It's, it's a heartbreaking, terrible plan. Here's what her plan is. She says in her own words, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare food for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Her, her plan is we're going to have one more meal and then die because... This is it. There's no, no more food after this. And, and so Elijah responds and says to her, he says, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Right? So that's what he says. And there's a situation. Is, he saying, is what he's saying real? Is it true? Because he's either a complete, heartless psycho, right? Who's going to take the last meal from this poor woman and her son. Or he's really a prophet of the Lord and these words mean something. She actually believes him. He's a prophet of the Lord and so she does exactly what he says to do. In other words, this Gentile woman has faith and God's word proves to be true. A safe place to have that faith. And she must, you know, she must... Believe the promises of God before she sees him work a miracle. The, the people of Nazareth, on the other side, other hand, are acting for the exact opposite, right? You show the miracle and then we'll believe. We're seeing the opposite. Now, the second story is recorded from 2 Kings, right? The next book over. Uh, chapter 5. And, and Naaman is a commander in a Syrian army. Again, not the Israel army. The Syrian army. He, he's also a heathen. And he's contracted this, this terrible skin disease called leprosy that we don't see much anymore. Praise the Lord. Uh, and, and so one of the situation here is there's a, a, a Jewish servant girl who was kidnapped essentially during an earlier raid from, from uh, the Syrians uh, from Israel. Uh, and, and she tells Naaman about a prophet in Israel. And she's saying, this guy would know how to, serve, know how to heal you. And so Naaman goes to the prophet Elisha, who, who, and Elisha is this grumpy old prophet. He won't even come out and see him, right? You've traveled all this way, and he's a commander. Won't even go out and see him. He just sends a message. Tell him to bathe in the river, Jordan River, seven times, and he'll be healed. And Naaman is livid, right? He has this expectation. He wants him to like, do magical like waving of hands and stuff to heal him. None of that. You know, he won't even come out there. But he, he's ready to leave, and yet his, his servants are like, no, like let's... Persuade him into this. 
think about what, what's being said here. You know, they, they persuade him towards, uh, towards, towards believing this. That, and, and so he does. Ultimately, he believes him. He goes to the river. He bathes seven times, and he is healed just like God said he would be. Now, back in Nazareth, where Jesus is, is speaking of these stories, we're, we're learning here, right, that, that, that while the people love Jesus' sermon introduction, right, ten stars, um, they don't so much love the conclusion. Would we agree with that? Um, with these two stories, they quickly become completely bent out of shape, and, and here's why. In, in each story, God is passing over his people, Israel, to show kindness and grace to a Gentile. And they hate that. I have, I have two older biological brothers. My, my parents were divorced when I was in sixth grade. Later ended up with a, uh, a younger stepbrother who uh, you know, was adopted, true, true brother in that sense. Uh, and and when my, my, my dad would show him kindness or, or spend money on my, my stepbrother, my biological older brothers would just get livid about it. Because they reasoned this way, you know, in, in their minds, he was our dad, right? And, and, and since he's our dad, and, and we were his real children, is the way he thought through it. And so we, he shouldn't be giving Matthew what rightly belonged to us. That, that was the upsetting part of that. That's the objection of the, of the people here in the synagogue in Nazareth at this moment, right? We are the people of God. And Jesus is saying that if we won't believe this good news, God will pass over and give it to the Gentiles. They're livid, absolutely livid. Right? Because adding to the insult of that in general is just the fact that, that, that in their hearts, you know, there's no nice way to say it. They're generally racist. They don't like Gentiles. See, what they're, they're missing, though, is, is that the good news is for Nazareth, yes, but it's also for Galilee and for Israel and for the entire world. Now, I want to be careful because when I hear this, it kind of sounds like the only reason that God takes the gospel to the Gentiles is because the Israelites uh, reject Jesus here, right? That's not what's going on, though. Uh, there's a guy named Fred Craddock. I can't pronounce anything. Fred Craddock, and he, and he said this perfectly. He said, Jesus does not go elsewhere because he is rejected. He is rejected because he goes elsewhere. And so after all this, all this, right, as in uh, verse 23 says, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, right? We're used to that word as an Old Testament word or a New Testament word as well, referring to, you know, God's anger at times. But, but this is the anger of these people. It's wrath. They're so angry, in fact, that they don't even sit through the rest of the service, right? We're in the middle of a service right now. You, you can imagine, right, that in, instead of a benediction today, we're going to kill this man, okay? That's the situation. The whole service just stops, right? Because it's this, this sinful nature of humanity to want to remove anything that offends us. That, that's what happens in Nazareth here. And, and it's heartbreaking because instead of being convicted of their sin and their unbelief, they, they want to protect their pride. They want to protect their current culture and way of doing things. And, and, and right? So we're seeing this. In fact, the Holy Spirit has not worked in their hearts this day. And so they want to get rid of the problem. And how do they view the problem? It's Jesus and the words he's saying. They don't, they don't see their unbelieving, unrepentant hearts, right? They just see Jesus as the problem, and so they want to remove him. 
Again, we, we observe this attitude in our culture in a thousand different areas, right? Uh, more and more the view of Scripture that, that offend people, right? Uh, uh, these kind of views are being relegated. They're being vilified. They're being rejected outright. And, and so people may, may act that we know, right? They may act like they're free. They'll, they'll tell you with their own words, I'm absolutely free. I'm not restricted by any religious laws or otherwise. But it doesn't take long to, to see what they call freedom is in fact a, a bondage to, to guilt and sin. And listen, Christian, this should not make you angry. I know our response is almost always anger in this situation, but it shouldn't make you angry. It should break your heart. Because the gospel is for any who will believe it. And, and, and in Christ, there is true freedom that every person on the planet desperately needs this, right? That, that's the freedom they need. should break your heart as you want to see them believe this and know this. And so in their anger, the, the people decide to stone Jesus to death. It might not sound like that at first. There's, that's because there's two ways to stone people. One is to throw stones at the person until you kill them. The other one is to throw the person at the stones until you kill them. And that's the, the situation here. They will push him off the cliff with rocks down below. They're, they're wanting to kill him. Um, which is really unexpected when you, when you remember that they actually know Jesus. They know his character. They know his kindness. They know he's a good man and, and every other thing that they would consider, right? They, they, yet here he is exposing their hearts as evil, and so they hate him. Our, our passage then ends in this mysterious way, right? Instead of the mob tossing Jesus off the cliff, he simply passes through their midst and leaves. It's a miracle, sure, but, but what this really shows us is that when, when Jesus is later hung on a cross... Uh, nailed to a cross and, and put to death at the end of his earthly ministry. At, at that moment, he does so willingly. Because at that moment, he, he could have just as easily passed through the Roman guards, right? And been on his way as well. That Jesus' life simply could not be taken from him. But it, it will be given by him to, to save us from our guilt, from our sin. So let me give you two little bits of application here and then we'll, we'll finish up. Uh, First, I, I didn't see this until I was reading J.C. Ryle's response to this in, in this passage. He says, in this passage, we learn how bitterly human nature dislikes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. To, to be told that God is great and just and holy and pure and gracious, uh, to be told these sorts of things people are willing to accept, Right? But to be told that, that God has mercy on whomever he chooses, that, that's a biblical truth that the natural person simply cannot hear. These people in, in Nazareth in this moment, they're, they're confronted with the truth that God is sovereign. And they are not. Of course, it makes them angry. They, they, they don't want God to save the Gentiles. Right? They're, they're a lot like, like Jonah. They don't want to see God reach out and, and show grace to these people. You can almost hear them saying, right? It's, that's not fair. It's not fair. We're the people of God. And yet God has a, a sovereign right to save whomever he wishes. That, that's the hope of, of world's, world's missions, right? That's why you can actually have hope for the salvation of your, your racist Uncle Jim, right? Who thinks Christianity is ridiculous. That's why you can be hopeful in that moment. 
Because God might give him faith. Even if you don't expect it. The other application here is about our our identity. Um, Here's Jesus in his hometown. He's being thrown out by men he's known his whole life. All because he's proclaiming the good news to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's he's tossed for being the true son of God. He's tossed for for having this message that, that their culture doesn't appreciate it and thus simply will not tolerate. But, but you see, or as we're going to see next week, their, their opinion doesn't crush Christ. He goes on and he continues to teach. He continues to minister. He continues to follow the Lord, he, uh, you know, his father. He continues to love others along the way. Now, I know it's easy to look at this and think, well, we're not Jesus. So, right, that doesn't rightly apply to us. Well, um, here's what I do want to say is we're looking at this. We, we see the way that he handles this. Jesus remains true to his father and he remains true to himself. I'm not going to say remain true to yourself. Be careful. Um, so, so when we face the opposition to the gospel, the, the, you know, to, to biblical ethics, to the life that God calls us to, we also must be true to Christ. He's true to himself because he is the Christ. And we're true to him because he's the Christ. We, we find and we keep our identity in Christ. Now that's a phrase that gets thrown around very often. I, I know we're familiar with it, but I don't know that we always know what it means. So let me try to give you a quick explanation of it. Your value isn't in what your peers or parents or co-workers or people on social media that you don't know think of you. Your value is in what God thinks of you. And so we need to not live life on that, the roller coaster of emotions, right? That, that rise when people praise us or, or that just plummets when, when people are indifferent to us or insult us. Or, or maybe we get the idea they don't like us. In other words, your, your value isn't in whether your family likes what you made for dinner. It isn't in, in what, whether people say you're beautiful or that you're good at your job and get promoted. Your value isn't in how funny or talented or intelligent or anything else about you. Your, your, your value also isn't diminished because of that mistake you made or that person who thinks something negative about you or, or, or what the other kids at school think about you or even what you think they think about you. Your value is in what Jesus thinks of you. And if your faith is in Jesus, then you are beloved, truly, truly beloved. Your identity, your value, just like your hope, must be in Christ alone. And we're going to end this by just coming back to this this issue of faith real quick. And and to do so by reading a a quote by by Philip Ryken, and, and then we'll pray here. He says this. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. If we want to receive eternal life, We need to believe the promise of the gospel. God does not take us to heaven first and then ask us if we want to go there. Instead, he invites us simply to believe in Christ, promising that when we do, we will be saved forever. We have to believe it to see it. Let's pray. Lord God, we really do want to have truth spoken into our lives. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes the truth of your word reminds us of our failure thus far. Lord, help us to remember that our hope is always in your gracious gift of salvation and not in our our having earned any part of it. 
Help us to remember all cor- or, or, or to, to remember that all correction and recalibration to your word is for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.